Make your way, if you will, to Genesis 38. Genesis 38. My Bible reads at the heading there, Judah and Tamar. Genesis 38. While reading a commentary in preparation for this sermon on this chapter, I found buried in a footnote somewhere a reference to a journal article entitled, The Body Bible. Body, meaning lewd or indecent. Sounds downright blasphemous. Surely only a God-denying liberal could write an article titled that, The Body Bible, the lewd book. Unless, that is, you're working your way through the book of Genesis. We have indeed encountered some body narratives in our study, haven't we? Some lewd narratives. Two sisters get their father drunk, lure him into bed, and both are impregnated by him. Genesis 19. The father gives the younger of his two daughters to be married to a young man, but on the wedding night, dad directs the older sister of the bride to his son-in-law's bedchamber, subjecting the poor man to the most rude awakening on the first day as a new husband. Genesis 29. Two wives scrap and bargain with one another for the opportunity to sleep with their mutual husband. Genesis 30. A young girl is raped. The man who violates her kidnaps her and pleads to marry her. Her father seems agreeable. Her brothers kill the man, along with every able-bodied man in the town, Genesis 34. And then we come this morning to Genesis 38. And if understood in the right sense of the term, we might speak with all due respect of the body Bible. We encounter here an indecent, lewd, account of real sinners committing real sin. Let me stop for a moment and say that this is not Hollywood-type lewd. Hollywood loves to take you behind the closed bedroom door. The Bible is much more discreet. Hollywood glamorizes bawdiness. It specializes in making heroes and heroines out of adulterers getting hearts to flutter and people to sigh dreamily when two unmarried people have sex together and disdain God's law. No, the bawdiness of the Bible is of a very different sort, but bawdy at times this book is. The Bible does not hide its eyes from human depravity. God does not blush to talk in discreet terms about the most sordid affairs. But mark this difference between God and Hollywood. In the lewdness of Hollywood, God's law, God's will, and God's love for his creatures is systematically spit upon with utter contempt. In Scripture, every lewd account is recorded in this book to magnify the splendor of God and to demonstrate his providential power and his sovereign love for his people. You will find it everywhere. It is a providentially oriented text here again before us this morning. That is, you don't see God in these pages. He's behind the scenes, but he uses the depravity of mankind to magnify his name. And so at the end of Hollywood's stories, there seems to be nothing but a flighty thought of entertainment that soon gives way to depression. 
But in God's word, these accounts turn to joy. So with this in mind, we enter Genesis 38. Here's what I'd like to do before we go into the text. I'd like to first consider why this account here, why this interruption, so to speak, in the Joseph narrative, this scene with Judah and Tamar. Then I'd like to go briskly through the whole chapter, if we can, and then at the end to stop and to linger a while on why this body narrative finds its way into the Bible at all and what does it have to teach us. So let me first set the context. Genesis 37, you remember if you've been with us or know these scriptures, uh, Genesis 37, Joseph is sold into slavery. Our natural interest then, as we come to the end of Genesis 37, is what? Our natural interest is what, what next? What happens to Joseph? Look at chapter 37, verse 36, the last verse of 37. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph to Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So Joseph is in Egypt, he's sold into slavery, and our natural question is, now what? Go to chapter 39 and verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, was one of the fair... With just one simple phrase, we're brought right back into the Joseph narrative. What is this chapter 38 doing here? How does it land right in the middle of the, the story of Joseph and slavery has just gotten started with the last verse of 37 and hear this interruption? Why? Well, I think there's a number of reasons <coughs> why... Chapter 38 interrupts the story of Joseph. First of all, remember, this is not technically the account of Joseph. Remember 37 and verse 2? This is the account of Jacob. And so in the account of Jacob, there's a reference to all of his sons somewhere in this account. And here we have an emphasis on Judah. So it makes a little bit more sense there if we remember, remember it that way. Secondly, in chapter 37, verses 26 and 27 specifically, Judah begins to emerge as the leader among his brothers. Judah plays the leading role in selling Joseph into slavery. Jo Judah will play a leading role in reuniting Jacob and Joseph. And Judah will loom large when Jacob blesses his sons just before he dies in Egypt. So in the bigger scope of things, in the bigger picture... The purposes of Genesis, chapter 38 pauses to draw attention to Judah for a very specific reason. He plays a very important part, not only in Genesis, but in the story of Scripture itself. This is chronologically, give me a, let me give you a third reason, chronologically this is where this chapter fits. What happens to Judah here and to Tamar in this section takes place while Joseph is in slavery in Egypt, while he's in Egypt. So it fits right here. There's really nowhere else to put it. Then a fourth reason, and I think probably the most significant to us, we need to step back from this section of the book of Genesis and look long. Remember, the story here of Joseph is not a movie. And so it would be a terrible interruption if you had the movie of a person's life and all of a sudden, right at the beginning, just as it got started, it went to somebody else's life for a, re for a period of time. But this is put together uh, as a book, not only the book of Genesis, but the entire Bible. But as we look at the book of Genesis, there's a very purposeful reason for this uh, narrative to be placed here and a 
clear emphasis on genealogy throughout the book of Genesis. Remember, it is the godly offspring revealed in the book of Genesis that is pointing us where? Pointing us to Matthew chapter 1. What we find developed in Genesis is pointing us to the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And from which son of Jacob is Jesus born? He is born through, in, in the person of Mary, his mother, he is born through the tribe of Judah. He descends from the tribe of Judah. So it is very important here that we establish Judah, that God establishes Judah, giving us a pointer to the Messiah who will come through this line. So as we consider the overarching purpose of Genesis, it's really not all that troubling that we find Genesis 38 here. It's where it fits chronologically and it serves the larger purposes of the Bible and of Genesis in particular. It is a body link, no doubt. But in the providence of God, an absolutely essential link, Judah is the one through whom the Messiah will be born. Let's go then with that introduction to the text itself. Judah identifies with the Canaanites in verses 1 through 11. In verse 1, he moves among the Canaanites. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adalam named Hira. At that time, that is in close connection with the sale of Joseph into slavery, he moves to Adalam in Palestine, about three miles southwest of Bethlehem. This is a crucial notice. Very important to understand. Judah leaves Israel's family. The storyline of Genesis would lead us to believe that this is more than a change of scenery for Judah. And heaven knows he probably wanted a change of scenery. In the midst of that troubled uh, family, so troubled by sibling rivalry, Judah probably needs a change of scenery. But that's not the point here. We need to read this in the context of Genesis in light of Lot and Esau, both of whom separate themselves from the land. Now here... Judah remains in the land, but he separates himself from the covenant people. What are the two promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? There's the promise of the land and the promise of an offspring. Judah separates himself from that offspring. He distinguishes himself from his family, and he identifies with the Canaanites. He moves to stay with a man of Adalam named Hira. So Judah chooses to immerse himself among the pagans, and the future of this son of Israel among the covenant people is severely jeopardized. Judah befriends this Canaanite, but it goes much further than that. He, in fact, marries a Canaanite. Verse 2, there Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who is named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Verse 2, looking at that again, we see the combination here of Hebrew words uh, which read literally, he took her and he went into her, yielding something of, a lust, of lustful overtones. I think the indication then with these Hebrew words put together, they're words that are used typically of, of marriage, 
But I think with their combination here and in light of the context of Genesis, like the men of Genesis 6, Judas saw a woman he liked and he took her with no regard for the spiritual implications. We must consider this verse in light of two other passages in Genesis as well. Chapter 34, remember the debacle at Shechem and how God in his providence preserves the Israelites from intermarrying with the Shechemites, these Canaanite peoples. Chapter 34. Here, Judah now walks on the razor's edge of becoming assimilated in his family through marriage with the Canaanites. God had delivered Israel from that in Genesis 34, but Judah now is walking in danger of that very same situation. We need to also read this in light of a second passage in Genesis, and that's Genesis 24. What happens there? Genesis 24, Abraham says in no with, with no confusion, you will not get a son, a wife for my son from Canaan. You will not do that. He is very careful to send his servant to find a wife for his son outside of the land. Here we find Judah with no such concern. He finds a Canaanite. She's appealing to him. He takes her. He marries her. He identifies with the Canaanites through marriage. It is a scary text. Now, it may not seem that unusual to us, but as we understand the covenant people, it is a frightening position in which to be. And here, Judah, the one that we know God is moving to bring the Messiah through his lineage, has now identified with the Canaanites, marrying a Canaanite. And it gets worse. He arranges, not only, not only marries a Canaanite, but he arranges, secondly, for his son sons to marry Canaanites. Beginning at verse 6, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. This was not a live happily ever married, ever after marriage, however, as verse 7 indicates, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Ur was a product of his Canaanite culture. He was wicked, notoriously so. Now, let's step back. This is, this is a passage that really is hard for us to grasp. And one of the reasons it's so hard to grasp is our culture is so very, very different. Let me stop here for a moment and try to paint just a brief picture of the culture of that day. When a son died, and he died married but childless, as is true with Ur here, one of his brothers would be called upon to take his wife and to father a child, and the firstborn son to that union, the brother of the deceased man, and this wife that was, not, was a widow, the first son born to that union would be raised as if he were the deceased man's child, and so would inherit in the place of the deceased man. Now these things give us the willies, and thank God we're Christians and not Israelites. It should. I mean, this is just a weird situation, but we don't understand the necessity of the social structures uh, that, that were established in that time. This was a way of caring for individuals, in, for women in particular, and, and there was an intense desire, a strong desire in the ancient Near East to preserve family identity and keep the social structures in place. And so this was law. Now the laws differed between nations, but even Israel had this law. The man dies, his brother will father a child by his wife. 
we don't understand today. I, I've never read anyone that's really articulated with clarity and, and, and with finality the relationship between those two. There seems to be evidence that at times marriage was not understood, at other times that marriage was necessitated, so they would marry. Now, in this context, we will see that marriage is what is considered. I'll get back to that point in a moment. But that's the context of the day. So if you had a brother that died, you're unmarried, you're a brother, you know this is the situation. Verse uh, 7. Ur dies, verse 8 then. Then Judas said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. That makes sense to us, right? It, it, it was frowned upon, but it was legal to refuse this um, responsibility. But Onan is a wicked man himself. He deceives his father, pretending to be a responsible brother when he's nothing of the sort. Verse 9 but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. That is, he would be get, this offspring would be his brother's and would inherit as if it was his brother's son. So, whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Onan's sin is not that he used this form of birth control per se. His sin is that he acts selfishly and irresponsibly. Now it's hard for us to understand any of this, but this is, this is leveret marriage. It's the, the word that is put with this idea of the brother, uh, brother-in-law marrying this woman and raising a child. And it was viewed as a sacred duty in that culture. And so what Onan did constituted an egregious moral failure. For greedy, selfish purposes, he deceives his father and he grossly misuses Tamar. This is not a one-time event. This is their relationship. Time after time, the Hebrew text indicates he went into her and did this, violating her, misusing her, oppressing her. All we need to really understand is that his sin is so great that God kills him. What he did, verse 10, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death. So where does that put Judah? Kind of in an interesting situation, doesn't it? Precarious situation. He's down to one son. He's lost two because of their wickedness, and he's down to one. What is he going to do? He's, well, he's not very high on the idea of giving another son to Tamar. Shelah, he does, he's, he's not, why give him to this woman too? And we see some of his thinking here. Verse 11, Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. We need to read again into this context. This is oppression on Tamar. This is misuse of her. He uses words here. We're not so sure about the words that preceded with Onan, but he uses words here that are much more in connection with uh, marriage. So he is essentially, what he says here is tantamount to betrothal. He's saying this will be your husband. Remembering that betrothal period was considered as part of the marriage, but they just were not together yet. She's sent back to her father's home and Sheila is uh, offered to her in the future. But it seems, does it not, from verse 11, 
that Judah really has no intention of going there, for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. In other words, he seems to look at Tamar here as bad luck. Rather than recognizing the sins of his sons, seeing them as being disciplined by God, he implicates Tamar. We have looked at perhaps two decades now in Judah's life. The text now jumps ahead in time and slows down to a very crucial period, one to two year period in Judah's life. Remember, what is recorded is vital to the message of Genesis. Keep that in mind. Genesis, genealogy, 315, pointing to Matthew 1 and the genealogy of Christ through Judah. Keep that in mind. That's very important to what we read here in this passage. The next section, we see Judah impregnating Tamar. Verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hera the, Ad, the Adulamite went with him. There's the setting, the scene. Sheep shearing was a time of celebration. Shepherds returned with their flocks. Contracts were finalized as shepherds were paid. New contracts were negotiated. And the nights became a time of celebratory eating and drinking. There is evidence that the Canaanites would also commonly practice fertility rites. That is, they would ritual sexual acts on the threshing floor at harvest time and encouraging the gods to give them a bumper crop is the idea. And there is the assumption that this was probably also somewhat commonplace at sheep shearing time. So here is Judah with his friend at sheep shearing time, this time of great celebration. He is a prominent man who owns uh, a great flock and is dealing, negotiating with the shepherds, and it's time for some fun. Verse 13, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance of an anaim, of en anaim which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. So Judah has not gotten over the death, it's now gotten over the death of his wife, but Tamar is still a widow. And it's dawning on her that she may never be given to Shelah in marriage. The problem here is that this is, puts her in a place of intense social trouble. It's a great social stigma attached to a woman that did not bear a child. In some degrees, it was uh, seen as a very negative thing to be a widow, as obviously. Uh, she was stuck living in her father's household with no real prospect of marriage from this point. She's being very much misused by Judah. So Tamar acts to change her situation. Now, viewing this from a Western perspective, we look at this woman as about the most evil woman in the pages of Scripture. But if we view it from an Eastern perspective, what we need to see here is an oppressed woman who is acting to change her circumstances. Is she right? Is she holy? Is she doing good, a good thing? No. But in the context of the day, we need to see her as really the one in the right, if there is a right in this chapter. So she moves to change her circumstances. She hears that Judah is headed for sheep shearing. The plan she hatches is wicked but conditionally cultured, not sensually driven. Sensuality plays a heavy part in her plan, 
But I don't think it's really her sensuality that drives her to this. It's her oppression that drives her to it. She dons the garb of a prostitute, veiling her face so that her identity is not revealed, and she positions herself so as to attract Judah's eye. Verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Just an interesting point here, but it, it might be that although she covered her face. There's all types of different veiling laws. There's still veiling laws in the East today that are almost impossible for an outsider to negotiate and to understand. There's evidence at times that it was illegal for prostitutes to cover their face. And that might be the case here, that it was illegal for her to do so. If you're a prostitute, you needed to have your face uncovered so everyone knew who you were. If you were a wife, your face was covered because you were off limits. We don't know all the customs of this time. So it might be that her face was veiled as a prostitute or that her face was veiled so she wouldn't seem like a prostitute, but yet she acted like one. doesn't really matter to us too much but to see that her, um, her scheme is working. She successfully catches Judah's eye, although he has no idea who he is seeing. Her intentions toward him are very clear. Verse 16, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. Or literally, let me come into you. Let me come into your place, into your tent. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. Everything right now is Judah's control. He's the one who's negotiating. He's the one who's working the deal. But at this point, Tamar begins to negotiate working her plan to absolute perfection. What will you give me to, to spend time with you? Verse 17, I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. So he's, he's not planning on this situation. He's not prepared for it. He just sees this opportunity here. And he says, I will give you a goat. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? Now she begins to negotiate, and she is now unbeknownst to him, really, in the driver's seat. What will you give me as a pledge until you send the goat, she asks. Notice how Judah responds. What pledge should I give you? That's a really weird question in this setting. Suggested, I think, far more by his hormones than his good reason. He is becoming putty in her hands, and she is in the driver's seat. Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her. It's just strange that a man would do this. Here's the deal. The, the seal was either a metal ring or a metal or stone small cylinder that would hang from the neck. And it would be very articulately carved so that as you rolled it on uh, hot wax or on uh, more likely on clay, it would be seen as your signature. No one could reproduce that. It would work as a legal document. Now, to have one of these things means that you are an important person. You're a person who's always signing contracts, and people need to distinguish your contracts from other people's contracts. And there was a cord, twisted thread, that would hang around the neck from which this ring or, or cylinder would hang. A staff was also a common thing for a gentleman to have in that day, and they found, archaeologists have found many of them, and they would have generally a top that was very intricately carved and ornamented and would distinguish them. Judah's not thinking clearly here. 
Tamar is running the show because what he gives her is far more valuable. The pledge is more valuable than the price. It doesn't make any sense. In our day, he's kind of handing her his credit card in lieu of $75. He's not thinking well. The irony is that he's being deceived. He had deceived his father in the Joseph affair with a cloak and the blood of a goat. Tamar deceived Judah with a cloak in the context of a goat. We find then that he gave them to her. He turns over his identity, essentially, to her for this one meeting, taking her cues as to what to give her in pledge. And we then read in verse 18 that he slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. So Judah impregnates his daughter-in-law. She apparently remains veiled during their, their encounter or in some other way remains anonymous, but he never recognizes her voice. He doesn't recognize her physically. It's a horrible, horrible scene. It is a body scene, lewd. But we must again understand it in the customs of the day. Now here, I, I said I'd come back to this point. Here, here's the point. If Sheila wasn't, Let's say that Judah only had two sons. The law would actually require Judah to perform the right, the, the leveret marriage, that, that he would be the one who fathered a child by Tamar. So remember again, this is a, that's a huge difference from our day, but that was the law of the day. So what Judah is doing, as Tamar looks at it, she is getting him to do what he ought to be doing. She, will not, she hasn't found a way to get Sheila to be delivered to her as husband, but she finds a way to get Judah to do what the law demands. She's oppressed, she's misused, she's manipulated, and she finds a scheme to get done what needed to be done to deliver her. So I don't think she's driven, again, by passion, but I think in the culture of that day, she's driven by the law's. What she does is wicked, but is far more righteous than what Judah does. Verse 20, Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, Where is the shrine prostitute who is beside the road at Anim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute there, here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. You can't give a goat to somebody you can't find. So what are we going to do about it? Let's get out of this situation before it really becomes embarrassing. Let me ask you this. Is his embarrassment being discovered as spending time with a prostitute? Is that the source of his embarrassment that he fears? I don't think so. He sends his friend, hire it to the men of the town, and ask them where the shrine prostitute is, and it's clear to them that Judas spent time with this woman. I think what his concern is, is that he will be made a laughingstock. Here is this prominent businessman that's been fooled by a prostitute and has given her away his whole identity. 
for the time being, until he replaces his credit cards and his ID and his license. He doesn't want to be made a joke and a laughingstock, and so he says, let's just forget about it. Let's just get out of here and uh, pretend this didn't happen. We did the best we could do. He's an honorable businessman with a prostitute, even though he's misused his daughter-in-law horribly. But he, tries, he tried to pay the dues. He doesn't get it done. What more can we do? Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Judah is filled with righteous indignation and callously calls for Tamar's execution. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. It's very careful with their wording. Judah could just absolutely blow a gasket when they came in and said, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, and just say, get them out of here. But she says, see if you recognize whose they are, to whom they belong. It's a gutsy move on her part. The timing is impeccable. By letting Judah express his anger, she opens his heart for conviction. We hear echoes of King David's indignation in response to Nathan's parable, don't we? I can't believe she would do this. Burner. Killer. God providentially moves through Tamar's deceptive ploy to make Judah, as Bishop Hall puts it, the trumpet of his own reproach. And the hammer blow is delivered in verse 26. Judah recognized them. You imagine what's going on emotionally in his heart right there as his heart sinks and begins to pound heavily. He realizes what has happened as all this dawns on him. What does he say? She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. Reading between the lines, the point is, and he didn't have her burned. He didn't insist upon that. She was under his family direction, having been married to his son, even though he sends her back to her father. I think that she would have been considered his responsibility. He doesn't exercise that responsibility, nor does he sleep with her again. That is, he does not marry her, but he does, unbeknownst to him, fulfill the law and raises up a son for his dead son, Ur. So what we see here in that phrase, and this is, I think, the key of the whole passage, she is more righteous than I. What do we see there? We witness here the humbling of Judah and the first major step toward a genuine faith transformation. Somehow in all of this, Judah realizes that he has been mistreating Tamar. This is a man callous enough to send his brother into slavery, callous enough to oppress this young woman for these for this period of time. But things are beginning to change in Judah's heart. This is a man who will shortly have to deal with another ghost in his closet, a brother he sold into slavery. God is pounding and tenderizing his heart. 
He prepares Judah for renewed leadership in the family by showing him his sin. And the point of this all starts to come into focus as we come to these last verses. Verse 27. If we're reading this narrative properly, this isn't just a lewd story thrown in there for entertainment purposes. It's leading to the birth of the children of Tamar, turns out to be. Verse 27, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. It's impossible to hear that and not think of Isaac, right? Jacob and Esau, there are twin boys in her womb. And she was, as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, So this is how you've broken out. And he was named Perez. Judah is obviously not in the picture here. The midwife is probably the one naming him. But you've broken out. So one boy starts to come out and withdraws. And the other one jumps in front of him like there's a race here to get out. And... You have broken out. You have the idea here of the name Perez is you have, you have triumphed. You have run, won the race. You have displaced your brother. You have succeeded in a very unique way. We'll name you Perez, meaning to break out. And I think is prophetic of the powerful house of David who will succeed in the end. David himself even passing up his older brothers, prevailing over Saul and breaking out as the king of Israel. I've tried to move fairly quickly through a lot of verses, but we do need to stop. If we could have a commercial break here, I'd show you one on the wall. Let's let our minds settle. We've seen what is here. Now let's spend a few moments and try to say a little bit further, though I've given you a lot of indicators, why? So what? Why is this here? What does it mean to us? First of all, heading number one, you could probably fill this in yourself by now as we work through Genesis, is the heading of providence, right? This is a body account. This is a lewd account. It's a despicable story all the way through. Onan is a selfish, manipulative husband in the bedroom. Tamar plays the prostitute, seduces her father-in-law, who hires what he believes is a common prostitute. There's misuse, there's oppression, there's all kinds of ugliness going on here. If you hold to the doctrine of providence, you say God is not in heaven ignoring this or hiding his eyes or sitting on his hands. He's in it all. Satan rejoices. The demons of hell celebrate. Great victories were won for the powers of darkness in Genesis 38. But we read this account not on the pages of Satan's book, but on the pages of God's book. This chapter is a victory for the Lord of heaven and earth in the midst of all this sin. Only God, only a God of providence would dare to bring good out of such lewd circumstances. And we're reminded once again that although the consequences of sin cannot be undone, they can be used in God's providential grace for good purposes. This never justifies sin. It does not minimize the painful consequences, but it gives sinners hope. God is never stumped. He uses Judah's sensual folly to wake him up. Next step, in short order, Judah will 
Judah, with a newly softened heart, will be heading to Egypt to find food. And God will have a thing or two to teach him there as well. His heart has been softened up for yet another divine blow. From this next wound, Judah will emerge as a very different man. The transformation has started. The man has gone into Canaan. His heart has been arrested. His attention has been gained. He is starting to change, and he's going to come to terms with a brother by the name of Joseph very soon after this event. The providence of God. Second heading, the preservation of God's people. As I mentioned, Judah's descent among the Canaanites greatly jeopardized the future of God's people. What happened in chapter 38, 34 rather, with Shechem needs to happen here in chapter 38. God's answer is mind-boggling to us in His providence. To preserve this family, what does God do? God moves to plant them outside of the promised land. It will take Egypt to save this family from itself. And Egypt it will be. These men do not have the faith of Abraham. They do not share his holiness and aversion to intermarrying with Canaanites, chapter 24. It will take Egypt to save Israel's family from Canaan. And Egypt it will be. God's headed there. He's showing us why the Israelites are going to head toward Egypt and why they will become a nation there. It will take Egypt, and Egypt it will be. Third heading, the genealogy of Christ. Go to Matthew chapter 1, please, if you'll turn there. Matthew 1. The Old Testament is pointing here, and as I've said so many times, it is not an accident that the New Testament starts after 400 years of silence, of revelatory silence, that the New Testament starts with a genealogy. This is the terminal end of the genealogies that start in Genesis. God is pointing us to the person of Jesus Christ. And notice how he points us there, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now where does it go from there? Perez, and on it goes. It is through this Perez, it is through this child born of this unholy union that Judah's line is preserved and through this Perez will come. Verse 16. The father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. Who is called the Christ. End of genealogies. Why is Tamar in Matthew chapter 1? Oh, there's so much fun here. <laughs> we, I don't have time to think with you through, but oh, so many possibilities as to why, and I hope in heaven to know. But just very briefly, without going into this long discussion, we notice in this genealogy that there are four women. Verse 3, Tamar is the first. Verse 5, Rahab. We know of her trade as a Canaanite. 
Ruth, a Moabitess, and Uriah's wife. We have in all four of these women, and by the way, uh, Uriah's wife married to a Hittite. We have in all four of these women sexual sin and or non-Israelite origin. What that teaches us is profound and long, and we don't have time for it today, but one thing that it teaches us is that God has always intended to include in his plan the Gentiles. That his plan runs through, the gen- through these various Gentiles. All of these women had a potentially scandalous sex life. All of them had connections outside of Israel if they were not outright Canaanites. But it prepares us for whom in Matthew 1? It prepares us for this woman named Mary who had a very unusual pregnancy. Although neither Judah nor Tamar knew it, their union would produce a son through whom would be born Messiah. We also see, I think, with their inclusion here, the whole idea of human depravity. Jesus was born into the lineage of real people and real sinners. Christ is commended on the weight of his own character, not on that of his ancestry. We need to press on. But the genealogy of Christ looms large in Genesis 38. I close with this point, and that is under this heading, walking with God. Every lost soul God chooses to save. Every soul who accepts Christ as Savior is a sinner. Every new believer is a project. And God specializes in transforming projects. That's why we can come in this morning and sing on the theme joy. He's in the process of transforming projects. Struggle with sin this week? I have. I'm sure that you have. We can be encouraged, Christian. God is working. We may think as we read a story like this, well, wow, I'm not as bad as Judah. He lived wickedly and things turned out. Goofy thoughts begin to pass through our mind when we read passages like this. Look how things turn out. Look what he did. A word on that, because I think it's necessary for us as New Testament believers. I have one simple sentence which should suffice. Now, if in the worst sense of the scenario, somebody thought, you know, it wouldn't be such a bad thing to hire a prostitute because look at how things worked out wonderfully for Judah and God will work through it and he'll take care of me. That'd be crazy, but there might be a thousand other sins that we justify as we read something like this. One sentence should suffice. Judah never met Jesus Christ. You have. And that'll make a world of difference in the way you live. Judah's lineage. Judah's, let me say this first, Judah's time. In Judah's time, he did not know Jesus Christ, did not benefit from his moral life. He did not have much of what we have, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and of seeing the crucifixion of Christ for sin. The only thing that Judah had ever seen was maybe an animal sacrifice in worship of God, understanding the need of forgiveness, certainly, 
but he never saw the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There's a world of difference between us. He had no Bible to which he could turn. So, with all of that in mind, we live in a very different time than Judah. But Judah's lineage through Perez, traced through Perez, born just a few miles from Adalam, many years later will be a baby boy named Obed in the town of Bethlehem. To him would be born Jesse, and to him David in Bethlehem, and to him Jesus of Judah in Bethlehem. We've seen that line. We've seen that strain. We know that Messiah. We've come to embrace Him and to know Him and to be saved by Him. And He's making a difference in our lives. And so we look at the sensuality of a Judah, and I might liken it to how do you expect a three-year-old to eat dinner? Not real pretty. You have some expectations, but it's usually not very pretty. If you've got next to that three-year-old a 23-year-old, how do you expect that child to eat dinner? Whole world of difference, isn't there? There is a world of difference between the way we expect Judah to walk morally and the way a believer in Jesus Christ on this side of the cross should walk morally. We have Christ, and we have an indwelling power to live righteously that Judah never had, and we have that power because of Judah's son through Perez, through Obed, through Jesse, through David, Jesus Christ, who saves people from their sins. So as we look on the horizon of Genesis 38, we look to a cross and to an empty grave, to a suffering Savior and a risen Lord, and through Genesis 38 we've walked, and we don't look back and simply point fingers at Judah, and we certainly don't excuse sin. We say that in God's providential leading and timing, in His patient working with humanity, He has slowly led through the time of Judah to the time of Jesus and to our day when we can walk in fellowship with God how much he has done since the days of Judah for his people, how much he has done for us, and how righteously we should live. Judah's eyes were opened, and they will be further opened as we progress through Genesis. But our eyes have been opened by that one born whose genealogy is described in Matthew 1, whose birth is described in Matthew 2, and whose coming we await. May we take a challenge from Genesis 38 and say, thank God I've been delivered from Hollywood lewdness. I have been delivered from the ways of this world. I have been saved to live for the glory of God. And I have a power inside that can motivate me and drive me to live righteously and produce the Spirit's fruit in my life. What pleasures we have. What joy by which we can draw waters from the well of salvation. What a great God and a great story. A story that he's writing in your life right now. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your...